Turn to Jonah chapter 2. We're going to finish up this uh, uh, mini-series and this long series we call Slow. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about obedience one more time today. And I know it is a, a topic that you love to talk about just as much as you love talking for five weeks about love. Uh, you love talking about obedience. The thing about obedience, and we've said it before, is uh, we all love when people are obedient to us. We just don't like it when we have to be obedient to other people. And uh, real obedience, um, is, it causes trouble in our life because it, it begins to point out uh, where our heart's affections lie. Uh, who is it that we're most loyal to? What, what is it that we actually believe or what is it that we trust? Whose words do we trust? When we think about obedience, oftentimes uh, we think about um, children. And as adults, we want to grow up. I'll, I'll be obedient only to myself. I'll, I'll let myself make my decisions. I'm not going to let anyone else tell me what to do. When I was a child, you could tell me what to do, but I'm no longer a child. I've, I've grown up. And maybe you are a child and you're thinking through that. I can't wait until I get to grow up and make my own choices. I remember getting my driver's license at 16 years old, thinking how incredibly great it was to have the freedom to go do what I wanted to do until the gas gauge went to E, and then I felt the weight of having to purchase gas and put in the, uh, the tank, and I thought, man, this freedom stuff isn't that great at all. Dad, can I just listen to you, and will you provide for my gas the rest of my life? No, son, I will not. But thankfully, that's not the gospel at all. It's not the gospel. Christ isn't asking us to grow up and make our own choices, our own decisions, He's not asking us to mature, and then once you're mature, I'm going to kick you out of the nest, and, and you're on your own. But instead, he, he wants us to be dependent upon him our entire life. In fact, maturity in Christ is really dependence and obedience to him for the length of your life on this earth and the length of your eternal life. So growing up in Christ is more about being, becoming less and less dependent upon yourself and more and more dependent upon Jesus. It's about obedience to him, to his commandments, to his desire, to his will instead of our own. And when we started last week the book of Jonah, we saw a person, a prophet, someone belonging to God, a religious person who, who knows the word of God, deciding his own fate, deciding that his own will and his own feelings were more important than the will and the word of God. A question for you that we'll get to in a moment, but I want to go ahead and ask it to you. Do we really believe that the revealed Word of God really is the answer? Or is it the Word of God plus other things? I mean, do we really believe that the Word of God is the answer? I mean, think about just this past week. The times you were asked something, or maybe you had a moment in your life that something rose up and you had to answer life's questions. Did you immediately turn to God's Word? Or did you, did you turn to your experiences or to your feelings and decide your answers upon those things? Maybe someone came to you and said, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm having this problem or this issue. Can you help me with that? And, and you wanted to at first say, yeah, well, God's word says this, but let me also tell you do these things as well. This is, this is a real heart issue. Do we truly believe that God's word is really the answer? Jonah had this moment in his life, this division, where he knew God's word. He heard audibly. God revealed his word to him, the will of God's life for, or the will of Jonah's life from God. He knew these things, yet he decided to act upon his own will, his own feeling, his own desires. 
He, he knew what God desired of him. He knew the word to share with the Ninevites, yet he chose to flee from the presence of the Lord. And so we catch up to Jonah. In Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, it says this, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So you remember Jonah, not according to his own will, but he was thrown overboard. He consented to uh, what, what needed to be done. He only consented to it. He had no delight in it. He had no joy of, or fullness of joy in the will. But he said, you know what, fine. I know it will stop this. I'm the problem. I'm the cause of it. If you guys will throw me overboard uh, into the sea, then, um, then the, the problem will be, will be solved. And as Jonah is now in the water, a, a, a miracle happens. A moment happens where the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Most of you in this room right now have no problem with me telling you that the Lord appointed this great fish. But last week, in your daily walking, your journey, did you have those moments too? Where maybe the Lord appointed something or someone or great fish of some sort to begin speaking to you, God making his presence known to you. And you would say, oh, we figured it out this way. It wasn't, it wasn't the Lord acting. It was just uh, the world. It's just how things happen. It's just a coincidence. So then Jonah, in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, says this, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. So this is what happens. Jonah is overboard. He's in the sea. Uh, he's swallowed up. He has no idea what's going on. Okay, don't think for a moment that he, he recognized all this. Oh, it's a fish from the Lord. He's swallowing me. He's not going to kill me. In this moment, Jonah gets to a point of repentance. He sees his life flash before him. He understands his rebellion against God and God's word, God's desire for his life. And in the midst of this dark, dark time, no flashlight. He wasn't prepared for this. He didn't have a bag full of things prepared. Hey, this is, the, uh, this is what you need to make preparations for in case you get swallowed by a big fish. Have all these things in your bag. No, he didn't have all those things. No Febreze, right? No Tic Tacs. None of those things. No Altoid for the fish. He had none of those things. He was not prepared for this moment. Instead, he was brought to his knees. He was brought to a moment where he knew the only thing that mattered in his life was repentance was turning away from his own desires and his own thoughts and turning to the Lord. Eugene Peterson says this, Repentance is not an emotion. It is not a feeling for feeling sorry for your sins. It is a decision. It is deciding that you have been wrong and supposing that you could manage your own life and become your own God. It is, repentance is deciding that you were wrong in thinking that you had or could get the strength, education, and training to make it on your own. Jonah thought all these things. Repentance it is deciding that you have been told a pack of lies about yourself and your neighbors and your world, and it is deciding that God in Jesus Christ is telling you the truth. Do we believe God's revealed word to be the truth? Eugene goes on to say, Repentance is a realization that what God wants from you and what you want from God are not going to be achieved by doing the same old things, thinking the same old thoughts. Repentance is a decision to follow Jesus and become his pilgrim in the path of peace. So Jonah's at this moment of repentance. It's interesting. One of the commandments from Jesus, uh, from, from the New Testament, he says that repent 
now, for the kingdom of God is near, is at hand. Repent. This is a commandment from the Lord. We, we don't, we shouldn't take it lightly. This turning around, saying daily, you know what, I've been thinking my own thoughts. I've been uh, deciding my own will for my own life. I've been uh, letting self rise up and deciding all these things. No. Instead, I will repent and I will turn around daily, walking uh, in the path that Christ has put me on. He calls out Jonah, verse 2, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Who did he call out to? The Lord. Who are you calling out to this week? Side note. Who is it that you called out to last week in your distress? He called out to the Lord out of his distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of shale I cried. Notice there. Jonah didn't think he was in the belly of a whale, but he, he instead, ah, messed it up. I was going to have a really cool little preacher line there. Start over for you, because you're going to want to hear this. Jonah didn't think he was in the belly of a whale. Instead, he knew that he was in the belly of hell. He says this, out of the belly of shale I cried. He, he almost thought, I'm committing suicide. I'm going to my death. Throw me overboard. I'm going to my death. And now I'm being separated from God. That's what hell is. Separation from God. I'm, I'm separated. And it's so interesting because his whole desire was to flee the presence of the Lord. And then when he felt like as if he was banished from the presence of the Lord, what did he do? He called out to the Lord in his distress. I mean, this is why Philippians 2 says this, that there will be a day that every knee will bow at the name of Jesus in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth. Everyone, though some will be separated because of their sins, and they will be crying out from hell, saying, oh, I wish, oh, I wish that I would have cried out before this, but I'm being separated from God because of my sin. You have a moment here this morning to repent of sin, to turn around, to see the darkness that sin creates or is, the death that, that awaits sin, and cry out to the Lord. And the amazing thing is, even in this story, the Lord heard his cries. Verse 3 says this, For you cast me into the deep. He hurled him. Like in chapter 1, all this hurling that happens. Interesting. In a moment, when we get to it, this great fish will then hurl Jonah onto the beach. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. And Jonah's at this moment where he feels like there's nothing else that can happen. It's only death that awaits me. If it's only death that awaits me, this is almost the saying of the preacher in Ecclesiastes, vanity, vanity, there's only death that awaits us. So what should we do? Uh, go to the one who created life. Go to the one who has life. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. See, remember Jonah chapter 1, when he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Let me go hide from the presence of the Lord. Let me disobey and rebel against God and his word, rebel against him, and try and flee from the presence of the Lord so that he may not see me anymore. Go hide in Tarshish. Go hide somewhere else. You cannot hide from the Lord. But when you think you can, and then you're brought to your knees. In that moment, remember who sees you there, the Lord. He sees you. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were, were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose, whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up, brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. 
There's only one who can bring you out of the pit of darkness. There's only one who can bring you out of the pit of sin, and that is the Lord. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay uh, regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. This gives us a glimpse of the heart of Jonah. It seemed as if uh, uh, he wasn't just rebelling against the Lord's word or the Lord's desire from his life, but it seems also in this moment that he went to, to, to go and worship other vain idols, to live his life for something or someone else. How often this happens in our daily life. We have these idols rising up in our lives that we want to worship them instead of the Lord. We find fulfillment in them instead of the Lord. We find joy in them instead of the Lord. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. We spent five weeks talking about godly biblical love, a love that the Lord has even for us, demonstrates for us. In Romans chapter 5 it says, He demonstrates His love for us, that He gave us His Son, that we could be redeemed from the pit, no longer separated from Him, but instead living in right relationship with Him in His presence daily. And the crazy thing about all that, the craziest thing about all that, I, I think, is that when that happens, and Christ is Lord of your life, you and I become the temple of the Lord. His Spirit comes and lives inside of us so that we might have intimate, right relationship with the Father. No longer separated from Him, but instead right relationship with Him. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. In this midst of sorrow, in this midst of pain, in this midst of darkness, in the midst of feeling as if he's separated from God, Jonah repents, turns back to the Lord. No longer is it my desire, but it's your desire. Lord, what shall you have have for me? What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This God that we serve is incredible. He even speaks the language of fish. He knows all languages. He speaks and commands the fish to hurl Jonah back onto the dry land. Maybe because of his repentance. Maybe because of his confession. Maybe because of his belief in the Lord. Maybe because of his promise to to fulfill the vows that he made to the Lord. And an understanding that salvation only comes from the Lord. You cannot receive salvation from anywhere else. No good merit that you ever do, no gold star that you can ever get will ever provide salvation for you. Only salvation only comes from the Lord. Repentance is necessary in lives of those who are wanting or desiring to follow Jesus. Daily, I would say, you're just enough of a sinner that you probably should be repenting daily so your heart is in tune with the Lord. And I know that's not fun to say, and I'm watching your eyes as I say that because that's what I do. And I see the, the pain of that, the thinking of like, well, I don't need to repent. I repented once. I was seven. I turned to the Lord then. Okay, if that was the case, if that was the case, I would see your life uh, being uh, flourishing uh, in the will of the Lord, maturing in Christ, that only your desires are that of the Lord. Chapter 3 is all about obeying the word of the Lord. It's all about understanding uh, this revealed word from God, putting into practice what God has says and what God has said and obeying it to everything that you can. Is the revealed word of God really the answer? 
I mean, in this moment where God has revealed to Jonah his desire, his will, his purpose, is the revealed word of God really the answer? I mean, did Jonah think that it was? Did Jonah think that God's word to the Ninevites was the answer? Or did he, did he feel like there was another something that should be done? Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah, verse 1 of chapter 3, the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message I tell you. Is this the message that they need to hear? Is this the truth that they need to hear? So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was exceedingly great. It was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in, in, in breadth. Uh, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be over." throne. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Everyone who heard the word from the Lord responded to it. And it seems as if they responded in a way that was going to or is giving glory to the Lord God. Is this really the answer for the city? I mean, this city's evil. It's a great city. It's evil. Uh, it's a, it's, it's um, going against God, rebelling against God. Is really the word of the Lord what they need? I mean, think for a moment some bad cities that you know. Maybe Kabul, Afghanistan, maybe Hobbes, maybe Tatum, I don't know. Uh, think of a city that you know that's just, uh, just evil. Las Vegas, uh, some of the, Washington, D.C., uh, some of these cities that you think of that are just horrible. Austin, Texas, horrible cities you can think of. You think, ah, you know what those people really need? Have you said that before? You know what those people really need? Maybe think about about your own neighbor or your own family. You know what those people really need? You know what they really need? And then somebody will say to you, you know what they need? They need the word of the Lord. Oh, yeah, I hear what you're saying, preacher, but they also need a good whipping. That's what they really need. If we could go in there and just whip them, maybe then, maybe then they would see. I think we constantly battle against this. Constantly rebel against the word of the Lord. Constantly decide for ourselves what is more important. What is the truth? The problem with this, the problem with this is that it began in the garden. I mean, Adam and Eve felt as if God was withholding something good from them. And because they felt like God was withholding something good for them, they rebelled against his will, his desire, and his word. How often are we that way? Lord, you're, you're withholding something good from me. Like, I understand what your word says, but there's got to be something greater, something better. I mean, I, I see what you're saying that your desire for my life is. Sh- sure, I understand that. I mean, I understand Psalm 37, and I want delight in you. I want my heart to be changed by you. But do you see my passions? And you keep saying my passions should be about this. You keep saying that I should be doing these things. But I, but I doubt that. So Adam and Eve, they rebelled against his will, his desire, his word. Jonah, same way. He felt as if he knew better, that he could find somewhere else to live and something else to do. So he fled from the presence of the Lord. This is disobedience. When we desire our own desires, when we think that we know better than the Lord, we begin to disobey him, trust our own feelings. And just as Adam and Eve tried to hide from God, ashamed and embarrassed, Jonah's the same way. And I think about our own life today. Do we truly believe that the word of God, the revealed word of God that we have today, is really the answer? Or is there more? Is there more? If you feel like there's more, then I would say this, I would challenge you this. Take a month, take a week, 
Some of you just need to take a day studying God's Word. No extra help. Just God's Word. Read it. Listen to it. Allow God to speak to you through it. It's living, active. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and set in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, take anything, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish, so that we may not die. Can't be the answer. It can't be. The word of the Lord, it can't just be the answer. It can't be that easy. It's got to be the word plus something else. These people reached a moment where they heard the word of the Lord And they said, repent from our ways, turn to the Lord. Maybe we won't perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. I think it's interesting. Great question from from a pastor and author. What is it that gets us stirred up for change? In this moment, the Ninevites need to change. They need to change their ways. All of us would agree on that this morning. They're evil. They're killing one another. They're, they're, they're cutting off lips and putting them on display. They're, they're mad. They're evil. They're not even full of joy. They're, they're, they're rebelling against God. They're so terrible. So what is it that gets, gets us stirred up from, for change? I mean, what is the answer for slavery? What is the answer for abortion? What is the answer for murder? What is the answer for genocide? What, what are the answers to these, these things that we have uh, going on in our life? What's the answer to your neighbor who plays ma- loud music or has a really, really loud muffler? Like, what's the answer for the tr- trash that's being thrown in your trash can that shouldn't be in there? And what's the answer for, uh, I, I don't understand this at all. This is real talk right now. What's the answer for people who don't dim their lights anymore? I don't understand that. What is the answer for them? Should I flash my lights back to them? Should I throw them on bright and say, see? See what it feels like? Should, is that the answer? Is that the answer? What is it that gets us stirred up for change? Is it disobedience to the commands of God? Or is it a falling short of the expectations we have? The expectations we've made up? I would dare say if you're like me at all, and I hope that you're not, but you probably are, You get more fired up and more willing or wanting for others to change when they're not like you and the expectations that I've made up for you or you've made up for me and the rest of the world. Or if you were just like me, then you would see. If you acted like this, then you would see. If you would just listen to me for a moment, then you would see. And you get more fired up with people's uh, expectations that you've made up with them falling short of those expectations than we do to the disobedience to the commands of God. And even in my own life. I've made up expectations for my own life, what I think I should be, accompanied by the wisdom of many around me, the experience of family members or whomever it may be. I have all these expectations of what my life should look like. And when I don't meet those expectations and I fall short of them, I get so discouraged, I'm going to change my life. I'm going to do do things and I'm going to be different. Yet I read the word of the Lord and I say, hey, that's good. That's a good word, Lord. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. I'm going to hold on to that little nugget for a while. I'm going to think about it, and I'm going to decide later on what, 
what I'm going to do about it. Unfortunately, your people of the land, they live in southeastern dry New Mexico. I know it's rained a little bit, but I don't know that we have a great enough body of water for Leviathan to come and swallow you up. So I would say this, let this be your big fish moment. This moment of where you're hearing the word say, no longer will I be disobedient to the words of God. Because the answer to those questions of, is it disobedience to the, the commands of God that serves us up or, or wants us to change? The answer to these questions gives us a glimpse into our heart. The answer tells us whether you exist to please God or please self and please people. The answer also tells us as a body, a community of believers, the body of Christ, the answer tells us whether our church exists to please God or please self and please people. We have to decide, is the word of God, the revealed word of God, is it truth? And if it is the truth, is it really what it says? Will it, will it actually happen? Has it happened? Is it going to happen? Can we trust in it? And if we can, then we should live by it. Let me give you a few commandments from the Lord. Matthew 4.17, from, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Is this a command we should follow? Is this a revealed word of God that we should Live through our life. Matthew 5, 44 through 46. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? Should we follow this command? Love our enemies? What about Matthew 6, 19-21? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Is this something that's true? Does Jesus know what he's talking about? But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Is this true, Lord? Is this really true or are we going to fight this? Matthew 7, 1-3, Judge not that you may not be judged, for with judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Really, Jesus, are you, are you being for real here? Is this really the truth? Matthew eleven twenty eight. come to me. This is one I really struggle with. I really doubt often. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus, I know you're capable of a lot of things. This is what happens in my head. I know you're capable of a lot of things, and you've saved my soul from, from hell. Uh, you're capable of many, many things. But really, coming to you, you're going to give me rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest in your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's not what the church teaches but it's what Christ has commanded. Luke 9, 23-25, and he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny self. Is this true? Take up his cross. Is this true? And follow Jesus. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Are those words true? Should we obey them? For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and, and loses or forfeits himself? Is this truth? Should we obey it? Luke 12, 15 says this, And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Are we sure about that? The world teaches us differently. Experience teaches us differently. Are we sure what Christ has commanded here? Are we sure of it to be truth? And then lastly, 
You sang it this morning. Matthew 22, 37 through 30. Is this truth? Is this revealed word of God that we should obey? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Is this the revealed word of God? And should we live according to it? Or should we rebel against it and do our own thing? And then chapter 4 of Jonah. We get to this moment where we see Jonah not shifting from consent to delight, but staying in this only consenting to the Lord's will. Psalm 1611, maybe you've been memorizing it, reading it this week, maybe. We find fullness of joy in the presence of the Lord. Fullness of joy in the presence of the Lord. Fullness of joy. Jonah, chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. What displeased him? When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would not do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Jonah was exceedingly displeased. There's no joy, no delight, no delight in the will of the Lord, no delight in the actions of the Lord. Or they'd be better off if you would not just remove them. Wipe out the entire great city of Nineveh. Remove them. He has no joy. It's, it's interesting. If you were to do a word study on exceedingly displeased. You know what exceedingly means? Exceedingly. It means great, large, large in magnitude, large in extent, large in number, large in intensity, large in, in, in uh, sound or volume. It also means, you've seen this throughout the Old Testament, some of you are at this point, it also means large in number of years. It means old in age sometimes. Exceedingly displeased. Not just a little bit, a small amount, a reasonable amount of displeasement, but instead a large amount of displeasement. And he became angry. He became furious. He became angry. This fire within began kindled. Remember, he just repented in chapter 2. He just had this aha moment. Lord, your salvation belongs to you. But in his selfishness, in his pride, he felt like salvation does belong to the Lord and the Lord can grant it. But in my pride and my selfishness, I'm the only one worthy of it. When the Lord grants salvation to others and others repent and turn to him, what is your own life like? What are your emotions showing? But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Emotions are an interesting thing to deal with. You deal with them daily. You have these constant questions in your own life. Why are you crying? Why are you mad? Why'd you laugh at that? Why'd you punch me? Why are you yelling? Why are you saying anything? I mean, these are the, I just wrote these down from our house this week. All these emotions dealing daily with us. Jonas wrapped up in his feelings and emotions still. Outside of the great fish moment, he's still dealing with his emotions, still allowing his emotions to control him. The word is spoken. From the Lord, God spoke directly to Jonah. He obeyed it. He consented to it. But he still has no real joy in it. There's a, there's a scene. Uh, well, let's, let's get to this. Uh, the second, second verse of chapter 4 says this. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? 
And that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. No, it's not. Johnny, you didn't say that. You, this is not why you were going to Tarshish. You were fleeing to Tarshish because you wanted to flee from the presence of the Lord, because you were being rebellious of him. It's not because you knew who God was and you were making this great declaration, hey, I know you were slow, uh, abounding in love, steadfast, slow to anger type of God who's relenting, so I knew you were going to relent anyways. Jonah, you knew nothing other than your feelings and your emotions. In fact, Jonah, that makes no sense at all. There's a great scene from the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I probably quote it way too much. Uh, it's a great movie. Uh, the, the brothers, are not the brothers, the friends there, they're in a tight spot, in a real tight spot, and they're in need of transportation and of some great hair jelly. And so, uh, so they, they turned to, uh, they, they went to, uh, Pete, one of the, the characters, they, they were at Pete's cousin's house, and, uh, Pete's cousin, uh, he turned them into the police. And the police show up, and the law's there, and, uh, you know, Pete's mad at his cousin for turning him into the law, and he yells at him, why'd you do that, Pete? We're kin, we're, we're family, and, and uh, Pete's cousin yells back, hey, I gotta do for me and mine. We got this depression and all going on. I gotta do for me and mine. I mean, this is, this is this moment. Well, then later they're at this, uh, tight spot. They need some transportation. And so Everett, kind of the ringleader there, uh, he stole a pocket watch from Pete's cousin. And trying to explain how selling it would help their transportation needs, Pete begins to get angry. He begins to get mad because Everett stole from his kin. And then in this argument that happens, Pete and Everett are yelling back and forth at each other and they're mad at each other. Everett begins to try and explain why he, he stole the pocket watch and how it was going to uh, bring salvation to them in a sense. And Pete yells this great moment that should have been yelled at Jonah in chapter 4. That don't make no sense. It don't make no sense. And Everett responds with this. Pete, it's a fool that looks for logic in the chambers of the human heart. It is a fool that looks for logic in the chambers of the human heart. Jeremiah 17, 5-10 says this. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert, and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed, though blessed, is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for it leaves remain green. And is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. How do you fight anxiety? You trust in the Lord. Verse 9 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So let me ask you this. What emotions do you associate with when following the commandments of the Lord? I mean, earlier when I read those commandments from Jesus, the few that I read to you, what emotions began to rise up in you? Let me give you some examples. Fear? What if I do love my enemies? What if I... What if I only store up treasures in heaven? Fear? Anger? Like Jonah? Surprise? Why would Jesus want me to do that? Uh, maybe another emotion that rises up is trust. 
I hear that and I'm just relieved. I, I have this unexplainable peace that's, that's come over me. Maybe it's anticipation. Maybe it's disgust. Does Jesus really want that from my life? Maybe it's joy. Maybe it is delight. Maybe it's duty. Maybe you just have this exceedingly great displeasement with the Lord. David Gibson says this, When we are not grateful for the little things, it is only a very short step to no longer being grateful for anything. When we do not enjoy and savor and love and laugh and delight in the little things, then we are headed towards losing our delight in anything. And when we cannot rejoice and delight in the joy of the Lord and the fullness of His presence and savor those moments and delight in His Word, when we can't do that, it is at that moment Jeremiah 17, 5 through 10 should begin to rise up in you. Lord, I don't want to be controlled by my heart that I know is deceitful, controlled by my, my emotions that I know change by the second some days. But instead, Lord, let me be controlled by you. Francis Chan says this, in our Christian world, we could easily identify a demon-possessed person. Oh, I know for sure that person is demon-possessed. But in our Christian world, how wrong it is that we often cannot detect someone who is filled with God's Holy Spirit. Oftentimes I have to remind myself as I look in the mirror, you say you have fullness of joy, but your face doesn't match that. Maybe you should tell your face also, hey, there's joy in your life. I got accused this week, you're too serious. Oh, that's a great holy word from the Lord. Thank you for that, brother pastor from south of here. Here's, joy, here's a joyous moment. The Lord is merciful. The Lord is gracious. The Lord is slow to anger. The Lord is abounding in steadfast love. Those are great, joyful statements. And we should rejoice in those statements hourly. By the minute, let me remind myself what Christ has done. Verse 5 says this, and we'll finish up. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat in it in the shade till he should see what would, ha- what would become of the city. Still not believing in the word of the Lord, really. He's consented to it. Uh, there's some change that's happening, but he's not sure if it's going to continue. Verse 6 says this, Now the Lord, God, appointed a plant. Crazy. Back in the Old Testament time, we could believe in those kinds of things. But our... A world full of science. We don't believe in those things anymore. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. I do not understand. Still, in Jonah's rebellion, in his disgust and his anger with the Lord, the Lord still desires to comfort the rebellious. So Jonah was exceedingly glad. Finally, some joy shows up because of the plant. No offense, Dallas, Clay, Libby, or Lee. But it was not the plant who he should be rejoicing over. It's not the plant that he should be delighting in. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed 
a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might not die and said, It is better, it is better for me to die than to live. Again, Jonah, the vicious cycle of our emotions. Thank you, Jonah. Whoever wrote this story down for us, thank you for reminding us of this vicious cycle of emotions and how the only thing that remains constant in the ups and downs of our emotion is the Lord. And if he is the only constant, then we should constantly be looking to him and his word for our life. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. We could spend hours upon this very moment how our pitying of things of this world are not the way they should be, how we pity plants and things of the world, things that moth and rust destroy, things that have no eternal value, but yet thousands upon thousands, millions, have no hope because they do not know about Jesus. Should I not pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? What a weird ending. What a weird ending to this great story here. What do we do with it? What do we decide with it? What happened to Jonah? Hopefully he repented again. We have no idea. Hopefully one day we'll see him there in heaven. We have no idea. What we do know is he's a great example of what not to do. Let me just end by saying this. Jonah found no delight in the will of the Lord. He consented to it, but had no delight in it. He found no joy in it. In fact, he would rather die. Death is God's wrath being poured out upon you. Jonah is saying, I would rather have the wrath of God poured out on me than continue to live in what I'm seeing. Let me remind you of the gospel. Jesus drank the cup of wrath so we could drink from the cup of joy and delight. I feel though that some of us constantly look at the commandments of Jesus and think, man, if I have to follow that, I'd rather have the wrath of God. Disobedience is a sign that you think your thoughts and emotions are more trustworthy than God and his word. Well, if that's what I'm supposed to be doing, then give me the cup of God's wrath. But here's the problem with that. The gospel says that you and I are too weak for God's wrath. You won't survive it. And God knows better. And that's why he sent his son for us. I'm going to end by reading this to you. Because Paul told Timothy that we should devote ourselves to public reading of Scripture. So I'm going to read it to you. Romans chapter 5. Verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since, therefore, we have been now been justified by his blood, 
much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Verse 11 says, More than that, we also rejoice in God. We delight in him. How do we delight in him? Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a a type of the one who was to come. Here's some good news. Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gifts following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, and much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous.